All right, so we are smack, right smack in the middle of five reasons why I think you should believe in particular atonement. I finished one. Finished one. Namely, the middle of five is one. Yeah. <laughs> They're not all this long. The other ones must be weaker. Yeah. Well, if I only had the one, that would, I would be satisfied with that. Uh, so, uh, the second, so the first reason is, is that I think you should believe in particular atonement because it's demanded not by Calvinistic logic, but by particular texts. The second reason uh, that I think you should believe in particular atonement, and I'll skip a few of these reasons. Um, uh, yeah. Did you tell them to text questions, or did you not want to? I did, I did. Uh, at the beginning, I said text questions. Do you guys need my number? Oh. Oh, yeah, it is. Thank you. That's a nine. Uh, so the second reason that I think you should believe in particular atonement is because it's demanded by unconditional election. It, it's demanded by unconditional election. In other words, if you affirm unconditional election as a biblical doctrine, if you're bought into that and, and you believe uh, that particular souls were chosen to be saved and that only those who are chosen will be saved, if you believe that, then I, I think that it follows that the death of Christ had the same particular people in view. So if, God, if the Father chose some and Christ died for Whoever, I, I think, you know, the implication is that if you accept unconditional election, people who are going to be saved, then that the death of Christ had those same people in view. In other words, there is this inseparable connecting tissue between whom the Father chose and those for whom the Son died. So, for instance, look at Ephesians 1. We, we miss this in our, in our reading, and, and we, we don't see the, the implications, the ramifications of what Paul says. But, but notice what he says here. Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. Even as he chose us for himself, this is speaking about the Father, he chose us for himself in him. Who's the in him? The Father chose us for himself in him. Who's that? In Christ, before the foundation of the world, in order that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he granted us in the one who has been loved. Now notice, the the election and predestination is Christ-shaped. Meaning that those who were chosen and predestined were done so in relation to Christ. In other words, they were chosen to be saved by Christ. That's what that text is saying. He chose us in him. He chose us in relation to the death of Christ. He chose us to be the recipients of what Christ's death would accomplish. He predestined us to, to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. So I, th- I think that's really, really profound that the intended recipients of the death of Christ and those whom the Father chose were one and the same people. Because again, the Father chose us in Christ chose us to be saved by Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we ought to give thanks to God always for you, brothers, having been loved by the Lord, because he chose you from the beginning for what? For salvation. He chose you to be saved. He chose you to be saved. 
The goal, the intention of election was salvation. Well, how do people get saved? What is the only way that people access salvation? The death of Christ. Now, they have to believe. No, no one's denying that there is a, there is a responsibility to believe, but, but no one is getting into heaven who isn't paid for. No one is getting there who isn't purchased. No one is getting there who, isn't, who doesn't access the salvation that Christ purchased. So the, impl- the, the inescapable implication is that those for whom Christ died are the exact same people whom the Father chose to be recipients of salvation. They're one and the same people. There's not a difference between them. Revelation 13.8. And this, this is very interesting. Uh, it's a verse talking about the uh, tribulation in the future. And it's talking about those who will worship the beast. Those who will worship the Antichrist. And notice who it is who does and does not worship him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. That is the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. How's that for a sentence? That's unbelievable. So, so notice, what is the title of the book? So there's these names written in the Lamb in this book. Okay, there's these names written in the book. And here's the question. Do the names written in the book, do they worship the beast? No, they don't, right? What is the title of the book? The Book of Life. That's the title of the book. That, that's like a Puritan title. It's really long, right? The Book of Life of the Lamb who has been slain. Meaning what? What's the implication of that? In other words, these people in the book, they were chosen. The, these, are, these are singled out and selected people and the reason why the book is titled what it is is because those whose names are in the book are selected to be purchased by the lamb who was slain. The, the, the title of the book is describing what's going to happen to them, purchased by the lamb who has been slain. So they are elected because their names are in the book. The title of the book indicates that these are the ones for whom Christ will die. Do you see? So If we're going to accept unconditional election as a biblical doctrine, we have to accept the inseparable connection with the death of Christ. Chosen to be saved, how do people get saved? The death of Christ. The people whom the Father chose and the people for whom Christ died are one and the same. I think you have to to believe that. Um, Third reason, I'll I'll skip this, uh, but I'll I'll just say the, the name of it. Third reason I think you should believe this is that it's demanded by the penal substitutionary death of Christ. In other words, the nature of the death of Christ for real, actual objects in view. In other words, there's no such thing as a penal substitutionary death for just sort of this ambiguous kind of group of people. And and that's just not how the the death of Christ works. I wish we could say more. I I know that wasn't clear. We'll get to that another time. I hope. I'll skip reason number four, too, just for the sake of time. I'm running out of time quick here. Uh, Reason number five. And maybe I'll I'll end with this one before I look at some of the the problem texts. Reason number five, I I think you should believe in particular atonement because it's demanded by the impossibility of a punishment inflicted twice. I know that's complex, but I'll, I'll say it again. Demanded, I think you should believe in particular atonement because it's demanded by the impossibility of a punishment inflicted twice. In other words, if Christ really died 
for every individual without exception, if Christ died for someone, then that means that the wrath of God against them has been removed. That's what that means. If, if that's what atonement means, right? If he atoned for you, the wrath of God has been removed again from, from you. But if Christ died for those who are currently in hell, then why are they still being punished? Like, like why are they being punished? How, how does it work? Why are they enduring the wrath that Christ died to remove? If he already bore their wrath, then why are they suffering wrath in hell? You see, if he already paid for it, why, see, it's the, it's the punishment being inflicted twice. He already paid, he already removed the wrath, he paid for the wrath, then why are they still being punished? Put it this way, I've got it written here. If, if Christ paid a real penalty and endured real wrath in the place of sinners at the cross, then how possibly can God punish those sins a second time? That's the issue. It's the issue. So the only way this works, and, and, and this is what you have to understand, the only way this works is if you believe that the death of Christ only created the possibility of being saved. You, you have to say that if, if you're, you're going to say, well, no, I don't believe in particular atonement. Well, then you have to be willing to say, well, I, I believe that, that the death of Christ only provide the po- provided the possibility of being saved. That, that's what you have to say. That doesn't make you a bad person or a bad thinker or a bad theologian. I don't think it squares very well with the substitutionary death of Christ. I don't think it deals with a bunch of texts that describe what the death of Christ accomplished. Um, but, but in no way do, do I think less of you if that's the position you have to take. Less, you, you, I think you should just have to have biblical text to defend your position. Um, more could be said. I'll give you the sixth reason. And this refers to, Carol, the, the thing that you asked about, about earlier. The, uh, the sixth reason, why do I have six and I told you five? I don't know what's happening here. I'm just, I'm just along for the ride. Okay, uh, my sixth reason, it's an extra, it's a bonus, uh, that I think you should believe in particular atonement is because it's demanded by the roles of the Trinity in the plan of salvation. It's demanded by the roles of the Trinity in the plan of salvation. In other words, here, here's my, my, my attempt at a chart earlier backfired. I don't know that I'm going to be able to do any better. Uh, but the Father, uh, he chose, that's an arrow, he chose particular souls, right? Particular people to be saved. Some from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. The Father chose them. Okay, I'm assuming that you're on board with unconditional election. It's, it's, it's in the Bible. Clearly, the Father chose particular souls from every nation to be saved. Okay, so we know that the Father didn't choose every single person in existence. We know that. We, we live with that. That's hard to figure out, but we know the Father chose some, not all. Christ, uh, there, there is Trinitarian dissonance if Christ... That's another awkward arrow. If Christ died for every single individual, individual, if he died for every single individual, is every single individual going to get saved? Yes or no? No, right? Um, and, and so, uh, but yet that's who he died for. But the father chose these people. In the end, who's going to get saved? The ones who 
The ones the father chose. So he died for every single individual without exception. The father only chose some. These are the ones alone who are going to get saved. So then why did, so all of a sudden like, well, in what sense did he die for them? Why did he die for them and not just for the elect? But what's going on here? And then you have the spirit. And I'm going to do another awkward arrow because why not? Um, uh, He awakens... Uh, regenerates and seals and a whole host of other things, indwells. Who does the spirit awaken and regenerate and seal? Is it every single person in existence without exception? Will every person be regenerated? No. And when you step back and look at the Bible as a whole, who is it that ultimately gets awakened, regenerated, and sealed? Them, right? So my point is, they are at cross purposes, right? So the son has something different going on, and he's dying for everybody, but the father only chose some, and those are the ones who are going to get saved. My point is, I'm creating this tension that the Bible doesn't even talk about. The Bible doesn't even, you know, have this tension because they work in perfect unison together. The father chose particular souls. Those are the ones for whom Christ died. Those are the very ones that the spirit awakens and and regenerates and seals and sanctifies. And if you take any position other than particular atonement, you have Trinitarian dysfunction and dissonance. That, that's what I believe you have. So again, you can have the, the non-particular atonement view, and, and I would not be offended, and I would still like to be your friend, and I hope you can still be my friend, even though I'm one of those particular atonement guys. Uh, let's be friends. Um, but I think you've got some, some problems here that you've got to think through. Okay, now let's deal with some problem text. We don't have, we don't have much time here. Um, and it's so hard to choose. Um, I really want to... Because again, the, the, you know, clearly some texts talk about you know, uh, that Christ died for many and for some and some from every nation and the sheep and he died for the church. Uh, but what do we do with the all texts? What do we do with John 3.16? What do we do with 1 Timothy 2.5 when it says that he was the ransom for all? What do we do with, with 1 Timothy 4.10 that says he was the ransom for all? What do we do with, with 1 John 2.2, which says that Christ was the propitiation not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world? What do we do with those texts? Does the Bible contradict itself? No one here would say that. But what do we do with those? Well, let's, let's take... Oh, man, so hard to choose. Well, let's take... Uh, Ah, okay, John, John 129. I'll start there, and, I'll, and I won't say as much about it as I would like. Um, and, and, and here's the question I'm going to ask before we read it. You know, okay, I, I love the all texts too. And, and, I think, and, and, and I think the question that you have to ask is, okay, uh, uh, the people who say, well, the Bible says he died for all. Okay, okay, I agree. And, and I love those texts too. And they are perfectly compatible, perfectly compatible with, with a particular atonement view. Um, but, but someone who says, well, the, he says he died for all, so there. I would say, do those texts mean what you think they mean? Or does the context of those individual texts indicate that the all is still something particular? And, and I believe that they are. So John 129. We'll start there. Uh, John the Baptist saw Christ coming. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here's the Lamb. He takes away the sin of the what? Of the world. Unlimited atonement. Christ died for every single person with that exception. Jared, you're wrong. Yet, yet, 
um, you know, I, I think, is that the only way to understand this text? Is, is that verse saying that Christ died for every single individual person without exception? Is that really what it's saying? Because if that is what it's saying, then you have to define the atonement in a different way than it's used all throughout the Bible. You're forced to. So the, the world is in view here, but again, again, um, I'll, I'll fast forward and, and just say this. Uh, the term world there, it does not have to mean every single individual without, without exception. In fact, it does not mean every single individual without exception. Notice, I think it's in your notes, John 12, 19. John 12, 19, the, the, it's the triumphal entry. The Pharisees are pulling their, their beards out because Christ is coming into town on this donkey. Everyone's hailing him as the Messiah. And they're like, God, why didn't we not kill him like months ago? What are we saying? Look, 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 look. And then this is what they say. See, the whole world has gone after him. That's what they say. Did they mean every single individual without exception has gone after Christ? Is that what they meant? Was every single individual without exception in Jerusalem at the Passover? What did they mean? Well, they could mean a whole bunch of people. Like, like just, just, you know, everybody, you know, the, you know, the, the hyperbole. Everybody's going after him now. Or maybe they meant the world, like all people without distinction. In other words, there were Gentiles there. They watched Gentiles. If you look at the context of John 12, there are Greeks at the festival and they're going after Christ. And these, these Pharisees are watching these Gentiles and go, look at that. Look at those Gentiles. Even they're going after him. Oh no, those Gentiles, look at them, they're going. And our countrymen, they're going after him. The whole world is going after him. I think that's what they're talking about. It's all people without distinction. Yeah. Did you use the same logic for John 3.16 when God said, for God so loved the world? Let's talk about that. Great. That's actually my next text. Okay. Because, I mean, like when you say the whole world's gone after him, did God really not love the whole world? It's only people groups within the world? It's, that's, that's it's the a, same logic. No. It, well, it's, it's not because the text is saying something different. So let's look at that. John 3.16. I'm glad you brought that up. It's my next text. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Okay, we know that well. And, and now, what does the text say is the object of God's love? The world. What does it say is the object of the death of Christ? It's a trick question. Right, right. So, so does the text say anything about for whom Christ died? Does it say anything about, about the particular people for whom he died? It, it doesn't. It, it, the text doesn't say anything about for whom Christ actually died. Rather, it only identifies those who obtain the saving benefits of his death. Who obtains the saving benefits of his death? Those who believe. So, so I think a lot of times people ask, are asking and demanding the wrong thing from John 3.16. See, John 3.16, particular atonement can't be true. I'm not saying you're saying that. But, but I've had those conversations before. John 3.16, well, what about it? Well, I get, just yeah. to answer oh, yeah, your go ahead. question. So to me, it's just hard to reconcile God saying that he loved 
the whole world. Yeah. When particular souls are chosen, yet there's not accept. You know, well, yet the ones that aren't chosen are condemned to wailing and gnashing of teeth and burning in front of the throne for eternity. And which you which you believe, right? Yes, I do believe that. Yeah. But that's hard to reconcile. You know that. God, like you said, I love all the women in this room, but one in particular. But do you truly love them if you're going to burn them for eternity? Well, but, but see, the reality is, is that we have to take each text on its own terms, right? We have to be careful that we don't import other theology into John 3.16 and say, ah, the only thing that John 3.16 wants to teach us is that God has a legitimate love for everybody. His love is indiscriminate. That, that can't be denied. Now, I agree that it's a tension. Like, well, how is it that God loves the world and yet he loves the elect in a particular way, which is the issue that you're wrestling with? And, and Well, I, I still, I mean, I'm going to research this a lot more, but I do have more of a leaning towards saying yes to question number one in the fact that I feel that people have, um, there's an acceptance. I believe God, I, I believe Christ died for all sinners and there's the, the, the point of where a, someone accepts that gift, but and that's why I, I don't ha, I don't see where there's an issue with saying you know Christ died for all. Yeah, well, neither do I, because there are specific texts that say that. We just have to define what the all means. Well, but a lot of the verses that were brought up were just verses that pointed to the church, which I obviously believe. But I don't yeah. think they are particular only to the particular. Well, I think, but, but I think you're forgetting several other verses that that were were very specific about that Christ died for many, and and Christ died for his sheep, and you know, I think I think you have to be willing to accept the full weight of of the I biblical. <laughs> Right, and I and I believe with all the texts that, that you would cite that, to say that Christ died for all. I believe those; they're, they're in my Bible. And but but my point is, Jeff, and and everybody else, is that um, you know, do the all mean what we think or want them to mean? Does that mean every single individual without exception? Because if so, in what sense did he die for them if they go to hell? See, see, that's that's the question. Now, obviously, we can't because they didn't accept that gift. And and and, and that. Well, it is true that people perish because they reject Christ. That is true. But we can't, we can't deny that, that dozens of texts describe the atonement in a particular way with particular objects in view. I'm, I'm not saying you deny that. You said you accept those texts too. You're, you're just coming at them from a different yeah, angle. I think it's harder to understand than the way we can frame it up. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't wrestle with it. I mean, I mean, I mean we, we, have to, we, have, we have to be willing to live in a, in a theological tension and, and be willing to live with the discomfort of, ooh, God loves all, but he has a special electing love for the elect? Yes. So can, can I ask a text question? How does that work? Uh, well, um, theoretically, yes. Let me, let, 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 can I, let, me, let me finish my thing on John 3.16 yet first, and then, and then we totally can. Uh, so the, the text, uh, the object of God's love is the world and, and God's love is unlimited in scope. I think that's what the text says. Okay. John's purpose in, in chapter three, verse 16 is not to flesh out in detail the, the plan of salvation. His point is only to say, look, God loves the world. And the point is the world is really, really terrible. And yet God loves them anyway. And God did the most unthinkable things, uh, unthinkable of things. He sent his own son and the text doesn't say anything about 
for whom Christ died, it only specifies those who receive the benefits of his death, which is those who believe. Now, here's the thing, Jeff, and everybody else, is that all through the Gospel of John, it specifies very, very undeniably clearly that there are a particular group of people for whom Christ died. They're called over and over again, the ones whom the Father gave me. He says it over and over again. Chapter 6, verse 37. Uh, chapter 10, verse 27. Um, chapter 17, verse 2, and verse 9, and verse 24. And all throughout the Gospel of John are these particular group of people. I, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those whom you gave me because they are mine. And you gave them to me. Whoa, whoa. So, so we have to see John through 16 also in the greater theological perspective of the gospel of John as a whole, which clearly talks about election and particular people for whom Christ died. Namely, and I would recommend to Jeff and to everybody else, uh, check out John eleven fifty three through 55, which we won't have time to look at here. Uh, you know, more could be said. Uh, all right, how about this? Romans eight thirty two. No, I'll, this will be my last one. I, I have failed you as as your as your hack theology prof because there's so many uh, texts that I want to give you. Romans eight thirty two. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Well, there it is. Christ delivered himself for all. Well, the, the, the thing is, the, the discussion is over. Jared, you're wrong. Christ died for every single individual without exception. But is that what the text says? Because, because um, again, n- notice the very next verse. Paul says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. So who is the all? It's the elect. He specifies exactly who he's talking about. In addition, Paul previously defined exactly who he was talking about in verses 29 and 30 when he said, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son and whom he predestined, these whom he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. So in between, so sandwiched on either side of the all, are those whom God predestined and the elect. So does he mean every single individual without exception? Clearly, he means those whom God has predestined, those whom God has chosen. He defines who he means. He doesn't mean every single person without exception. He means those whom uh, uh, God has chosen and predestined. And who is the us before the all? Delivered him up for us. Precisely. Exactly. The us. He, it, it, so, so even the all there even within itself as a self-contained unit that specifies even who the all are, right? The us are the us who have been predestined. The us are the elect whom no one can bring a charge against. Yeah, well said. Okay, well, geez, uh, you know, like seven texts and my six implications that I really wanted, wanted to give you. Let me give you one implication, just one implication, and then you can ask some questions. Uh, here's how I work this out um, in, in my evangelism and, and with my kids. Um, this literally changes nothing about the a genuine offer of, of salvation. It doesn't change anything. It, to me, nothing changes at all. Well, it's like, well, what do, you, what do you tell sinners? You tell them what the Bible tells you to tell them, which is that you can have access to everything Christ purchased free of charge 
if you repent and believe in Christ. You can have it. Well, what about particular atonement? What about it? That's not, that's not my concern in that moment. That, that's, that's a to, to God to work out. What about election? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if they're elect. That's not my concern. My, I have one responsibility, which is to proclaim the gospel to that lost person. Am I concerned if they're elect or not? It's in my head. I'm like, oh, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Does it change anything about my responsibility to believe? No, not at all. And so what do you say? What do you, what do you say, Jared, to, to unbelievers? Do you say Christ died for you? And I don't. I don't say Christ died for you. You know what I say? I insert one word. I say Christ died for people like you. Christ died for people just like you. And you can have, free of charge, everything Christ purchased with his death. Repent, believe, trust only in him. Everything Christ purchased could be transferred free of charge to your bankrupt spiritual bank account. And even if you are an an unlimited atonement person, you can say that too. Did Christ die for people like them? He sure did. But as a conviction, I can't say that Christ died for them. I don't know that. I don't know. Now, if I hear you say, if I hear you talking to an unbeliever and you say, hey, Christ died for you, you need, you need to repent and believe. Am I going to come slap you upside the head or, or blow a whistle and intervene? I am going to throw a party that you share in the gospel. And I will say nothing about your presentation. No harm, no foul. I just want you to share the gospel with people. The real gospel. Don't, you know, don't, don't fudge it up. But... Um, but, it, but if you're like, look, I, in the moment, I just, I don't know what to say. I'm just going to say Christ died for you. You know what? The gospel is the thing that saves and, and that's okay. So it changes nothing uh, about the urgency or responsibility to share the gospel. Now, let's, let's see the damage that's been done here, shall we? Let's see. Let's see how many memes I've got. <laughs> do I have any memes? Uh, yes, I do. I have a one from Erica. That's a weird one. <laughs> Okay. Well, yeah, you could do that too, but 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 these people they they wrote they took time to write them. They premeditated these. Holy smokes! But it was or, or the eleven minute break. No wonder. That's what this is. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, does anyone here, well, let me ask you. Well, I'm just killing our time here. Uh, does anyone have the, the area code 828? What? Area code 828? Oh. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, anonymous. Anonymous. Dang it. Sorry. Okay, ask another one first. This is not. I should, yeah, I was checking if it was Facebook Live. Sorry. Okay, is it at all disingenuous to preach repentance to the lost in view of the doctrines of total depravity, irresistible grace, and particular atonement? In other words, is there any real choice to repent if your sins haven't been atoned for? And similarly, uh, is there any real choice not to repent when Christ has chosen me? So it, it's a great question, and, and I appreciate it. And, and that is a theological tension. You know, so in other words, um, I'm sure that was a meme. Um, you know, uh, you know what, what is the point? If people are chosen and there's total depravity, what is even the point? And I would say you just have to be willing to, to kind of be a, you know, a live in a theological, 
multiple personality world where in one sense, um, you know, you have to just live with the reality. There is a real choice to repent. There is. Now, that, that seems like that doesn't seem like it squares, but it, does election or particular atonement or, or total depravity, does that erase or minimize anyone's responsibility to re- repent or believe? Not at all, right? Not at all. So, so is there real choices that need to be made? Totally. So it's not disingenuous to, to preach that. And the reason why is because um, calling someone to repentance is the means that God uses to awaken people from the dead. So as you say, look, so there, there's a guy called on the phone. Uh, the other day, and, and, and maybe he's on Facebook Live right now, and it was a, it was a strange conversation. And, uh, and he goes, well, I called here to get some help. And I said, well, okay, well, I am helping you. And I said, I'm calling you right now to repent of, of your slander, and I'm calling you to repent of your lust, and I'm calling you to repent of your drug use, and I'm calling you to repent, and I named three other things. I said, so in calling you to repentance, I, I am helping you. I'm calling you to repent and, and believe to submit yourself to Christ. And that call to repentance is the means that God uses to awaken people from the dead to embrace Christ. So it's not disingenuous to preach uh, repentance to the lost because that is the means that God uses to to transform them. And because uh, personal choice is not minimized at all by any uh, of the doctrines of total depravity or unconditional election. Um, Okay, uh, read to yourself first. I will try. Um, okay, uh, I may not have time for that one. We, may, we might have to talk personally on that one because I won't have time to, re- to read all that. Okay. <laughs> nice. Nice meme. I love it. Um, I did. I did. And I love it. I love it. Uh, okay. Can you square Second Thessalonians 2.10 with particular atonement? What does our choice to love or reject the truth have to do with it? Okay, Second, Second Thessalonians 2.10. Well, let's just see about that. Second Thessalonians 2.10. There's one... Greek word there that I don't know. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, all in righteousness to the ones who are perishing. Okay, I just need to, that Greek word I don't know. Give me a second, guys. Sorry. No, this is not entertaining at all. See my bald head as I'm looking down at my, my Bible here. Okay, uh, so the it's describing the end times, the second coming of Christ. And it says, uh, and the text that's cited is, and with all wickedness, uh, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Okay, so the question is, can you square that with particular atonement? What does our choice to love or reject the truth have to do with it? I'm sure that's a good question. I don't, I don't get it. I'm sorry. Come talk to me after, okay? Sorry, I'm not, the, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. What does our choice to love reject have to do with it? I, it maybe this won't answer your question. I'll, I'll at least just say this. 
Um, you just have to live in a, in a world in a theological tension when both can be true. Both meaning um, that you have a real choice to, to uh, love or reject the truth and then you have to just live in this other sort of theological reality that on the other side, mysterious though it may be, uh, that God chooses and Christ died for a particular group of people. You just have to be able to live in both and that those do harmonize perfectly well, that the Bible has no problem with any of those realities and that both can and are true, can be true and are true. And it's helpful to, think, to realize that you know, with, with, because of total depravity, we're unable to love the truth. Yes. The spirit regenerates very well us, said and he only regenerates the that group of people yes for which christ died very good well said very well said thank you uh okay so do you have did you have one uh i can ask you later <laughs> <laughs> all right here's the, here's the meme here's the, here's the latest meme that i got it's a picture of gandalf and it says <laughs> It says a Calvinist is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he was predestined to. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more. Okay, uh, any, other, any other questions? I, this, is, this is heavy stuff, and I really, I really, really mean it. I'll, I'll get to you. Hold, hold on a second. I really, really mean it when, it, when I say, if, if you take the unlimited atonement view, no harm, no foul, I, I want you to believe in particular atonement. I think the implications for it are glorious and, and, and breathtaking and exhilarating and, and will strengthen your life. Uh, if you choose not to go down that road, uh, let's still be friends and still be a part of this church and, and, and let's do the Great Commission together, okay? No harm, no foul. So I'll go her, then her, okay? Go ahead. Oh, let, let them go first. Mine's not important. Come on. Well, it's, it's not really a question. I'm just, from my own heart, hmm. um, sometimes in my compassion, I, I, it's, uh, I think that I, I believe the first few for a long time because... I, it was hard for me to think that there's somebody in the church that, you know, thinks they're, they're saved and they, they serve and they, and they want it so badly, but they might not be. Mm. And, and, and so you think, okay, it's kind of like, okay, i got to let God off the hook here. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, like, my sister three weeks ago, she, we were talking, and she said, I shouldn't be alive. I don't know why the Lord uh, has spared my life. And I said, well, it was because you were predestined to be saved. Well, she looked at me like, what? (laughs) And so I said, okay. And so I told her what, what I learned. Yeah. And she burst out into tears. And she cried uncontrollably. And I, I waited until she calmed down a little bit. And I said, Sister, what what did I say uh, I, that caused you to have so much emotion? And she says, I might not be safe. Mm. And, and she was as serious as a heart attack. Yeah, yeah. And she was grieved. And it took Charles to sit down with her and reassure her and walk through some things with her. Mm. But so this is something that um, I personally had to be very careful in trying to 
discuss with people. Yeah. We haven't had any tension. The tension comes with those who have an overdeveloped sense of fairness. Mm. That was part of her issue. It's not fair. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we were talking about that in the break. Yes, yeah. that, that's, that's really true. And, and the world is teaching her that every day yeah. with the snowflake mentality or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, well, Charles, well said. Well said, though. You know, I, I honestly think that if we're really convinced of how serious total depravity was and who we were before Christ rescued us, it solves all kinds of tensions. It's like, this, the, the only way I was going to get saved is if I was chosen and if I was paid for and if I get regenerated, which awakens me, which even allows me to believe in the first place, which, without minimizing any responsibility to believe. <laughs> That's weird. Does that work? It works. Maybe not be logical, but it's theological and we have to live there. I did forget one. Um, okay. Uh, okay. Uh, people of God reminding us. Okay, give me a second. Hebrews 9. Uh, we read that Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So I believe that's Hebrews nine twenty-eight. In John 6, Jesus said clearly that he knew who would, uh, who would and, and who would not believe, and they were his sheep. He said, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. One people... Uh, uh, might be a typo here. One people of God predestined before the foundation of the world, all of them to be raised on, on one day, the last day. What is that day? Okay. Oh, oh, there's a correction. Who would, and okay, who would not believe? Sorry, I know this is, I'm not, I'm, I'm dive bombing. Pray for me. Okay, the question is, the people of God predestined before the foundation of the world. So is, is the question about the actual day and not about particular atonement? Yes, I think so. Okay, so what, I think the question is, if this is not your question, my apologies, the question is uh, that people will be raised up on the last day. What is the last day? Okay, Uh, if that's not, let me know. So uh, it's interesting um, this language that Christ takes in John 6 is actually comes from Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And, and what you have to understand about the judgment is that the Bible clearly indicates uh, that there is more than just like a single day. Actually, the judgment is spread out over a series of judgments. So I think what Christ is doing when he talks about the last day, and again, forgive me if this was actually about particular atonement and not about the question that I'm answering, but... Um, you know, uh, basically the language that Christ uses just, it, he's not taking the time to flesh out all of the intricate particularities of the series of judgment. He's just using sort of uh, summary language to talk about the last day of judgment when in fact other texts talk about that there's a series of judgments. He just is emphasizing, look, uh, the last day is uh, a series of judgments in which all people are going to have to give an account for their lives to God and that it's not just one particular day. That's probably not what you're going for. If not, come talk to me. My apologies for butchering that. Um, okay, Jeff, did you have something? Uh, yeah, we, we brought up the Lamb's Book of Life yeah. earlier. So in Revelation 3, verse 5, it says, He who overcome... He, excuse me. 
He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Yeah. But I will confess his name before my father and before angels. Mm-hmm. Now, the only reason I bring that up, because it, at first we're talking in the sense that only people that were saved are written in the book of life, but it, this text, and there's two others, that there's a blotting out of names out of the book of life, not mm-hmm. the books the book of life mm-hmm. so in i guess that maybe i'm conflating things but i've often thought of that as like well christ died for all but by not accepting the gift the name is blotted out of the book of life mm-hmm. maybe that's wrong thinking but i mean i know we've had a conversation in the past maybe maybe don't remember about the book of life but um it clearly seems like people's names are blotted out of the book of life yeah and i don't think that's a problem with eternal security or anything but mm-hmm. i think despite people not accepting the gift of salvation that they're blotted out and there's exodus 32 and psalm 69 that talk about people's names being blotted out as if their name was in the book of life but then it was blotted out for some particular reason mm-hmm. so i guess i don't know what my question there is other than a statement it seems like people's names are in the book of life but there's a reason why they're blotted out and yeah. I don't know why that isn't per se, but I would think that'd be not accepting Christ. Yeah, that, that's a good question. Uh, first of all, uh, every single blessing at the end of those letters, individual letters to those churches, are, are using Old Testament figures and metaphors and language, including the book of life. I will say, I think it's a different book than the one described in Revelation 13.8. I believe it's, it's a different book of life. <laughs> yeah, but it's not the book of of life of the lamb who has been slain. And it, interesting what he does say is that, and that's okay, you don't have to agree with that. That's, that's totally fine. Um, but notice what he does say, I will not blot his name out. Well, not. So he's saying what he will not do. So we, we have to be careful that we, imp, that we don't import an entire theology of what we want the text to say in a text that's not actually saying what, what you want it to say because that, you imported a lot of stuff into that text that it's not actually saying. No, I'm, I'm bringing up the point that yeah, people's sure. names are blotted out of the book of life. For some reason, I'm, right. know, whatever that reason is, you can bring to it, but I'm not. But back to, my, back to my comment, though, he's, using, he's referring, he's using an Old Testament metaphor to describe something that's not the same thing as the Lamb's book of life. It's, I'm arguing it's a different thing. That, that every single blessing and curse that he threatens is using Old Testament language. And so, I'm just, I'm just saying, Jeff, Hold on a second. It's, Jeff, it's more complicated than, than, what, than what you're making it. It just says, anyone not found written in the book of life. That's the same book. It doesn't say about the lamb there. It just says the book of life. Okay. All right. Well, I'll, it's I'll look. It's got to be the same book. Well, maybe so. I'll, I'll look into it. I'll look into it, and, and that's okay. We can agree to disagree on that, and I still really like you. And um, <laughs> You're starting to wonder... <laughs> Not fair, not fair. Hey, and you know what? This is really great. This is good for us as a church to, to have these discussions in front of all of you guys, to, to have these, these kinds of, you know, gnarly discussions in front. Because at the end of the day, you know, Jeff and I are going to put our head on, on the chopping block of uh, the inerrancy of Scripture and the deity of Christ and, and the substitutionary death of Christ and the exclusivity of Christ and the gospel, right? I mean, we're going to... I hope you agree about those things. I, that's what... 
That's what, that's what I'm saying. We're saying we're putting our head on the chopping block. So this is really good to have this kind of in-house discussion, and 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 we can embrace each other as as uh, as friends afterwards. So it's good. It's good discussion. So I have kept us over than I longer than I meant to. My apologies for that. Uh, you guys are dismissed. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Oh, sure, of course. So if you don't. If you don't believe in a particular moment, you don't believe in unconditional election either. Right? I well, you can, you can, but I think I think that there is there is a contradiction that either people don't see or they're or they 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 just aren't willing to face it or maybe they just don't make all the connections. I think there is an inseparable connection between the two, um, and uh, and so I think I think if you affirm one, you have to affirm the other. Okay, and and the opposite of that, of course, is is. Is uh, I lost my thought. Yeah, sorry. But, but but basically, people choosing to or to to trust in Christ, basically, right? Uh, maybe, yeah, yeah. Like, like they have a response, basically. That's oh. the opposite of Calvinism, right? That people have a response. That. People have a choice. Yeah. Oh, free will, something like that. Well, that, Bobby, that's a, that's a good question. Well, here's the thing: as a as a <clears throat> seven point Calvinist, uh, I believe that people have full responsibility and 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 accountability for the for the free choices that they make. I think people, I know people, because the Bible tells us they do, make full choices for everything that they do, and they bear full responsibility for those choices. But making choices just and isn't isn't is not incompatible with them being chosen or paid for by Christ. So I'm arguing you you have full responsibility for all the choices that you make and you can and and election those exist in the same universe and they don't contradict each other. It's maybe not answering your but question. At but. the end of the day, God has already preordained everything. Sure. Even though we had a choice. Sure, right, right. It, it changes nothing in some mystery. It changes nothing about our responsibility to believe or repent or do anything else. But um, and and that we we should we have to make sure we always affirm actual real choice. We can never let that go. We have to hold firm. No, we make real choices and are held accountable for those choices, and that can never change. Um, and and just we just have to be willing to say, at the same time, but God chooses who will believe. How does that work? Mm, I don't know. So it may not be answering your question, but but you're wrestling, but you're wrestling with attention in a great way. It's uncomfortable. But we got to live there. That's why I keep a little box that where I put mysteries. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's I call it residue. That's the easy thing to do, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, not, not easy, but no. But that, but that, but that helps. Yeah, that's well said, Bobby. Well said.